From the campus of Harvard Medical School, this is Think Research, a podcast devoted to the stories behind clinical research. I'm Abby. And I'm Brendan, and we're your hosts. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. And by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. In immunology, the research is often computational, as scientists strive to understand healthy versus unhealthy viruses and how they impact the microbiome. As this work expands into opportunities for therapeutics and real benefits for patients, Dr. Kate Jeffrey is using her recent Harvard Catalyst pilot grant to expand her field. Kate Jeffrey is an associate professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and an immunologist and epigeneticist at Massachusetts General Hospital. So, um, Kate, do you want to give a small introduction of yourself? Yep. Hello. Uh, my name is uh, Kate Jeffrey. Uh, I am uh, an associate professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, um, and my lab is based at Massachusetts General Hospital. Uh, I'm an immunologist and epigeneticist. The overarching goal of the lab is really to understand human immune diseases better. And that's sort of in two flavors of how our environment uh, influences these diseases, because we know it's not all genetics. Um, and also, you know, how that environment integrates into our epigenome and, and how that altered epigenome changes the behavior of ourselves. Um, and so, one aspect of the environmental component um, is uh, something that we call the virome, which are um, viruses that exist within our gut um, and how um, they may shape our immune system and, and contribute to disease. Okay, great. So I know you applied for the microbiome opportunity that we had, I think it was launched about three years ago now with the symposium. And so one of my first questions um, is, you know, why did you apply? What, what, what was it about the opportunity that, um, you know, gave you that, you know, impetus or, or um, you know, decision to say, okay, I'm just going to, I'm going to apply for this? Yeah, so I had, we had just embarked on the Virome work, which was a fairly relatively new frontier for my lab. Um, and we, you know, I, I had arranged access to uh, clinical samples at MGH to look at the virome in patients. And actually at that time um, was when this um, pilot announcement, um, I, I saw the announcement. And it was actually, it was just almost perfect timing for us because we just started, we just were accumulating preliminary data. And just to get that pilot grant really before we had any other major funding towards this project um, was, yeah, I mean, it was just perfect timing. Um, and so I applied and then went through the rigorous process of the sort of presentation and, and Q&A and everything. And that was great. And I think obviously, you know, microbiome, it was the call for microbiome, which, you know, most people work on the bacteria, but we sort of had this new angle of, of the viruses that are part of that community. And the rest yeah, so of the group, we got it. Yeah, yeah, uh, um, which is great. And um, in terms of the award, do you think that it helped you because 
you know, this was a new area in which you were doing research. It wasn't necessarily what your core focus was. Did you see it as a sort of proof of concept kind of a grant? Yeah, definitely. So all of my NIH funding at the time was epigenetics uh, and immunology. Um, and so this was, um, yeah, just a, um, some funding for us to, to get that, to get the project properly kickstarted, I would say. Because, um, I mean, you know, to put things into context, you have people in your lab, but you actually need to find funds to pay these people in your lab. And so this really enabled my postdoc to have defined time towards this project. Um, and it also served a purpose for us to um, essentially define our project. Because I really, what I really liked about the process was us constantly saying, well, what are our aims? What do we plan to do? And, you know, we constantly met as a group and you sort of, you I guess, continually refining the project. And I have to say as an academic, you know, we all have great ideas, but I do think that project management is something that every academic could improve on. And I have to say one really positive outcome from, from this was just, you know, achieving realistic goals in a realistic time frame, what are we trying to achieve? And actually really truncating that down so it is achievable in that time frame. And I think I felt like that was a, a really positive experience for us. Oh, that's great. That's great to hear. Um, Cause that's definitely something we strive towards um, in, in whatever small incremental fashion that we try. Yeah, I mean, like think, about, think about an NIH grant. I mean, you write an annual progress report. That's basically it, right? And so actually I found this process really refreshing because I think that you, it is good to be just reporting frequently and, and constantly thinking about where you are in the stage of what you proposed and, and what you need to do to achieve that. So, yeah. It was yeah. Yeah. Is it something that you've tried to apply to uh, other projects as well. <laughs> yes, all of a sudden, every project in my lab is perfectly managed in time. <laughs> right. um, no, but it is something that you you think about, and I think I think that yes, I have tried to implement more definitive timelines on projects as a result. Um, and it doesn't need to be a huge achievement just by saying, I want this part of this project achieved by, you know, this date. I think it's definitely changed my, my way of thinking. Oh, that's great. That's great. You know, you kind of touched on it, but so it was a new area for you to research. And what do you think is it, the importance of studying the virus? Yeah, so um, the, well, there's two parts. I mean, I think we've all been obsessed with one virus over the last year and a half. And this concept that viruses are pathogens is, is quite clear as the outcome of the COVID pandemic or the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic. But this idea that viruses actually exist amongst us and many of them don't cause any pathology is a fascinating concept, right? Because it's almost like that goes against this idea that all viruses are pathogens and are all out to hurt us. And not only are they not hurting us um, in the gut, there's this idea that many of them have just evolved with us for so long that 
our immune system and these viruses are just in a homeostasis relationship and actually can't survive one without the other. And so that for me is a conceptual um, thing about, you know, conceptual aspect of the work is really interesting. But the other more tangible aspect is that we've started to identify viruses that are actually only in patients with inflammatory bowel disease. And so now you start to think about, okay, well, we can vaccinate against pathogenic viruses like SARS-CoV-2. What about trying to vaccinate against, you know, more chronic damaging viruses in IBD? Um, and conversely, what about trying to replace that healthy virome in a, an inflammatory bowel disease patient for, for benefit? So that's sort of the two, the two main um, things that I get excited about is just that fundamental understanding of, of what are viruses. We just think of them as these biological entities that need us to replicate, but they're not always damaging and we actually have some beneficial relationships with them. And then the converse, can we find some causative viruses of these chronic uh, immune disorders like inflammatory bowel disease? You know, you, you're talking about the virome and in IBD and colitis and all those types of diseases. So what did you find? So the, the crux of our findings was, you know, I'm an immunologist, right? So I care about how these viruses educate our immune system in good and bad ways. Now, the virome has, you know, exploded in popularity in the last few years. But that explosion has been by sequencing. And people are just sequencing all different tissues and all sorts of diseases and telling us, oh, yeah, there's changes in viruses in type 1 diabetes, in graft-versus-host disease, in patients with HIV. Um, you know, the list goes on. Many, many diseases have been looked at including inflammatory bowel disease. But I took a step back and was kind of like, yeah, but we, it's all correlative. Like we don't know what these viruses are doing to our immune system. And so we just took the reductionist approach as, okay, well, why don't we just figure out, is our immune system seeing these viruses in health? And is that a beneficial thing? And when the virome changes in disease, is, actually, is that actually contributing to disease? And so we took the immune immunological approach um, where we isolated viruses, collective viruses, put them on immune cells and just asked, what do these viruses do to immune cells? And it turned out that viruses from a healthy gut actually amazingly triggered this very protective anti-inflammatory sort of program uh, in innate immune cells. And conversely, viruses isolated from an inflamed inflammatory bowel disease gut very much provoked inflammation. And that, that was the first evidence that these viruses can autonomously do something outside of the bacteria that they exist amongst. Um, and secondly, that, you know, you can actually start to manipulate the immune system in, in good ways and bad ways um, with, these, with these viruses in the gut. So in my view, I think your project was, uh, you know, successful pretty successful very successful i think and um yeah and we're still waiting days, for reviews i just wrote to the editor now but um, yeah and and a, you know and relatively speaking fifty thousand dollars isn't that much money yet yeah. you were able to you know use every i want to say penny but every cent of it in a you know productive 
way. And so how do you think you manage that? Yeah, so $50,000 is not a lot of money, um, unfortunately. Um, paying salaries of postdocs and reagents and things, you know, it, it costs a lot of money. I think on average now it's suggested that every paper in publication in a top-tier journal costs about a million dollars in funding to get done. But this $50,000 was very valuable because it enabled me to designate time or part of the time of my postdoc towards this project so I could designate that funds towards her salary. But it also enabled us to get the processing of these clinical samples done. And that was the defined part, right? We had this, set, we had this relationship form with the colorectal surgeon at, at MGH um, and this enabled us to just extract those viruses from those colon resections and, and then start to do those experiments. And then other money started to trickle in. So, you know, and as you just get those initial findings, then we got a, an R21 NIH grant and then, you know, some other funding. So I think, you know, 50 grand in isolation, there's no way we could have done this project. But I think that it got things kick-started um, because, as I say, it could... I could um, devote specific time of my postdoc to this aspect and it enabled us to just sort of get extracting of these viruses from the colon resections. Yeah, yeah, exactly sort of how we would want it to work. You, you've got this small amount of money for a proof of concept, you know, relatively high risk project, let's say, because it's not sort of considered something that's in your field yeah. necessarily yet just by getting it um, and being able to devote the time to it um, it's helped with pushing it on and yeah and definitely I think it's also just a good thing to say is that well, once you have money on something the project becomes real <laughs> yeah know, yeah you know, every why well, every scientist has a million ideas and actually, my postdoc advisor once said something that was very um, profound, and that was, it's always easy to start a project. And that always stuck with me. And I think, you know, going back to the project management and, the, you know, the, all of those ideas, I think scientists have no shortage of ideas. I think it's just executing those ideas. And you need the funds to really be able to just make that project real and get it going. Um, yeah. And then ultimately finishing that project getting it published and yeah I mean where do you think you are now and how do you think your future of this research is going to go yeah so it's interesting I was a nobody in this field like four <laughs> years ago like who is this person and I'm, I'm almost now considered like one of the major virum players like it's kind of funny um, initially it was just a, an interest and I thought, well, people aren't looking at the immune responses to this. So where is it going? I think that we're going to move beyond correlative aspects of the virome and then, you know, now trying to implement this. Is this a real therapeutic window here? Can we vaccinate? Can we inhibit some of these damaging viruses? Can we use healthy viruses akin to a healthy microbiome and start you know, transferring healthy viruses to a, to a patient. So I think that's going to be the next stage. We've gone beyond sequencing, beyond computational analysis, um, you know, learning from the microbiome field of the last 20-odd years of research 
and just getting beyond those correlations and, and asking those direct questions about, you know, what are these viruses doing and how can we, how can we leverage this for benefit for these patients? So, you know, I mean, you touched on it already about the project management piece, but there was also the, the part that when, you know, we get people in the same cohort together every four months or so to present to Catalyst Leadership. How did that help? No, look, I'm, I'm a huge proponent of the more feedback one can get on any project before it's submitted for funding or submitted to publication and more feedback on everyone's got their different strengths and weaknesses, right? And if you're the only one that's looking at your project and data the entire time, I do think that's a problem. And, you know, and some departments are better than others of, of mitigating that, right? So departments will have work in progress and you've got more, more eyes on the data and the story. But I think that this forum definitely helped our project because there was often, you know, people are coming from a completely different point of view and they would suggest something that, oh, gosh, I didn't even think about that or, you know, because I don't think about that <laughs> generally. So I think any presentation to, a, to peers and, and colleagues uh, is always beneficial for science. I have been asking this question to the other people I've interviewed just because um, I recently finished reading this book called Range by David Epstein. And it sort of, he basically compares the Tiger Woods of the world with the Roger Federer's, you know, Tiger Woods and golf since he was a baby. And um, Roger Federer had played all these sports and came to tennis relatively late. Mm. but Roger Federer was still able to get to the top of his game because he had had all this other experience playing those other sports. Right. And sort of one of the things that I that he mentions in the book as well is that there are those people who are the specialists and there are all the people who are the generalists. Are the generalists, because they've come from a different background, they've done lots of different things before they've, fallen on you know fallen upon their their sort of right. A, right, area of expertise yeah. that, that that they are now um able to use that sort of diverse background and apply it to what they're doing in their particular career focus i mean how what do you what do you think about that as from a scientist perspective yeah yeah from yeah. your perspective personal yeah. scientist you know yeah look i'm i think for any profession and or particularly science, I think, you know, a well-rounded um, skill set and personality goes far. I think that, you know, everyone in science is smart, right? You know, and some people were, you know, thought they were going to do it from birth. Others, I didn't know. I mean, I was always really good at maths and science at school, but I, you know, I was also liked art. And, you know, so for me, it was a bit later, and it was more the research component that got me excited, actually. But I would say as a principal investigator, there's your success is so much more than the ability to do science. Actually, the, your job, it's like that saying of like you get promoted to incompetence where you're like, you, you know, many scientists are really good at science and then they get a group to lead and they don't know how to communicate and they don't know how to manage and they don't actually know how to write particularly well and they don't know how to give good presentations. And actually, those four things that I just mentioned is almost the crux of the success in a science career. 
out there you know, in addition to the science. So the ability to communicate, the ability to manage your people, the ability to write, like, you know, it's just like a huge part of an ability to sort of, um, I guess, be a good boss and mentor. Like that's a sort of, that's a huge aspect. I mean, you hear all these horror stories about, you know, great scientists but awful mentors, right? And that's just unfortunate because I think that's people that have just been so narrowly exposed to things throughout their life. And I, I don't know, I, I feel like the I've always been really good at the bench work and the science work and all that sort of stuff. But, like, I feel like when I came into the next sort of foray, I felt like my world experiences and my life experiences of moving from Australia to the US and always travelling a lot and being independent and, you know, these all these things have helped me with my with my science so you know i'm a i'm certainly a specialist but i'm a bit more of a generalist in my other skill set i would say yeah what kind of background do you do you have um, yeah, so i grew up in um australia uh went to melbourne university um and there i was doing yeah so australia not like the American college system, as you appreciate, you do actually do a Bachelor of, but yeah. So I started doing a Bachelor of Science, Bachelor of Arts, double degree. Um, and then it was, I got into biochemistry and got really into that. And then when I like started studying immunology, it was like, well, this is awesome. But, you know, that's just book science and you don't really know what science, I, I didn't know what a career in science entailed. My parents are not academics. I didn't know anyone that had ever had a lab or run a lab, you know, I didn't even know what that was. And then I sort of got into doing research and like in the lab. And then it was just like, oh, wow, there's this whole creative component of this. Okay. So I could just do book science and just remember stuff and then, you know, go and do, you know, whatever degree and yeah you know, but then it was like oh you've got this whole creative aspect to research because actually it's like lateral thinking and and interpretation and just learning to sort of it's not all black and white and that that was the stuff that I really excited me and then it was like oh cool you can have this like totally international life you're not like stuck in a hospital in Melbourne for the rest of your life being you know so that was that was appealing um and so then I yeah I did what's called an honours year in science so I did a year in a lab where I did a mini thesis um and then I actually, in true Australian style, just put on a backpack and went around the world for nearly a year living in China and Japan and, you know, going around Europe and whatever. And then um, I came back and I actually got a fellowship to do my PhD. And so that's when I um, did my PhD. Uh, I was actually looking to do my PhD overseas, but then a person that I really liked their work had come back to Australia actually from Boston. And so I joined his lab, that's Charles Mackay. And Charles basically taught me everything I know and he is still a major part of my professional development to this day. Um, and that, you know, not to be too on my soapbox, but that's for the younger scientists, choosing the right mentor is absolutely everything. And trusting and, and knowing that that mentor is going to continue to support your career pretty much for the rest of your career, that, that essentially made my career. Um, and so I hope to pay that back, of course, in my, um, my own mentees. Um, so then I moved to, uh, so I finished my PhD and then Itchy Feet moved to New York. But I think in Australia, sort of, it's like that, 
um, inferiority complex or something. I don't know why Australia has that because it's actually an unbelievable country to live in and there's fantastic science. But there's, I always say that to my husband who's American, Australians are very outward looking, Americans are very inward looking. And Australians, it's like, go overseas, get the experience, go overseas. And so I went to Rockefeller University, like what else would you want to do? So I went to Rockefeller and, um, yeah, did my postdoc there under a fellowship from the Australian government. And then, um, yeah, well, met my husband and then we both moved to Boston to start labs. And, yeah, so, yeah, that's that's the path, I guess, in a nutshell. So Yeah, yeah. It's a winding path of, yeah. of just, Yeah, but I never yeah. had that, like, I'm going to be a scientist because I, I, I knew what I was good at, but I was only aware of the classic careers in that path, like being a medical doctor or, you know, doing, you know, what do you do? You be a science journalist or you were, I didn't know. Like I or just, a teacher. Or know. a teacher or yeah. I didn't know that there was this whole world that you could just do research. Um I, I mean, I did, but I didn't know what that was. And I, you know, I didn't know what that entailed, actually. Um, and it's interesting because obviously in the Boston area, you meet so many kids that, like, whose parents are professor. And, like, so the, those kids, like, have seen their own parents and have that whole path. And they still choose it, which is amazing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, there was a certain naivety for me going into this field. So um, I... Yeah, I think, you know, you just sort of take the opportunities as they come along. I've always said I'll keep doing science until someone tells me not to and I'll keep doing science while I find it. You know, it's, you've got to enjoy it. You've got to love it. Like why else do it? Why else do anything? Um, and we are in a position of incredible privilege because I don't make a profit for anybody. I don't, you know, I have this complete freedom to just come up with hopefully good ideas and, and execute them. Like what a what a luxury that is. Right, exactly, exactly. Um, and so you said you were interested in art, you had done your dual degree. Do, do you do anything in that sort of creative art yeah, side so of it? Even I, though I know science is creative. Yeah. So I always have had that um, in, the, in the back. I mean, obviously, like everybody, I read a lot and, you know, I like art and whatever. But I... Um, a lot of my friends are artists and filmmakers and things, and I get a lot of enjoyment out of that because it's nice to get out of the science world. And Although there's a many, many parallels, actually, in those crews. Um, and so when I was in New York, um, I founded a, a film festival with a colleague, um, the Imagine Science Film Festival, so that was trying to um, show films, you know, related to science and trying to sort of break down the stereotypes of science and... Um, you know, because that was something very important to me. So it's like, oh, my God, I'm not a old man in a lab coat. I'm still cool and I go to bars <laughs> and see bands and I just right. like right. science thing on the yeah. side. Um, and so, yeah, we tried, to, we did this science festival, which was, ended up being really successful because New York being New York, people have a large appetite for these types of things and we got a lot of funding from various sources and Alexi Gambus who you know did the the majority of the work on this festival he's now he finished his PhD ended up going to NYU film school he just had a film picked up by HBO Max like he's like totally doing the filmmaking um, thing so that for me was the creative side of New York and, and doing that film festival um, 
I would love to say now in my spare time I have all these creative ventures, but I'm a mum with two kids, so my creative thing is going to soccer on a Saturday morning, <laughs> like <laughs> taking my kids to gymnastics or whatever. But, yeah, like I, I mean I still read a lot and I think actually, you know, reading broad literature, you know, always helps one's writing and, and um, ability to communicate, so... Um, yeah, but having even having that experience of uh, founding a film festival about science, that is sort of something, let's say, the, the old man in the white coat would think would was unnecessary or something that didn't give you credibility. I think I was yeah. told, I think I was told at the time by my postdoc advisor, this is a distraction. Um, and I think that's, you know, there's probably some truth to that. But I think like, you know, that was something that was making me happy and was feeling a not a void, but feeling part of me that I didn't feel like was being satisfied, particularly in a city like New York, where like so much, so many creative things are going on and you just felt like, you know, this is a great place to do this. And it was super fun. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate us on iTunes and help us spread the word about the amazing research taking place across the Harvard community. To learn more about the guests on this episode, visit our website, catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch.